What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, Mm. brothers or something like that. And have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get Mm. a German shepherd or a Dutch shepherd from is Haus Hamburg shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs- mm-hmm. Because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs yep. will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the buffet himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America. Yeah. And go and see old mate, Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from canine everything. dynamics. Oh, canine dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from canine dynamics. Yep. If I'm in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benware. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to get a play and train Mm -hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia as well. Ashland, Ashland, Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. I can be either one of those Mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. While you're sipping cafe lattes. Just just gallivanting all over the world. (laughs) Gallivanting. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined in the studio <laughs> by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Isn't this amazing that we actually have a good sound profile now that when you talk and I talk, I don't have to wait and think, oh my God, it's going to muffle your voice out and yep. go through all that rigmarole. Yeah, we can talk over each other. Exactly. Like we're just talking at the same time. We can do this guy. We can talk over each other. What was exciting was just walking in here turning everything on and then starting up instead of having to do the like, hang on, hang on, let me change networks. Let let me see if this works better. Hang on, let's try this other program. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, no, it's not plugged in. There's a plane flying over your head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank God we're back. Yep. 
I didn't miss sitting in the car for an hour each way, though. That I could do there. Yeah, Dave came here the other day and, like, he lives literally just down the road. He's usually on, like, smack on time when he's coming. Yeah. And he said to me, oh, mate, the traffic is horrendous. But it was Freedom Day. So everybody's just going, Freedom! (laughs) Get in my car and drive. And just, yeah, I just get out and drive along the road just because I can. Yeah. Do you see the mass crowds getting into Kmart and everything? Like. needs to be in Kmart at midnight. They do online shopping. Why? Like people were lined up to get in there at midnight the day that it opened. It's like the age old question though. Why does a dog lick its balls? Because <laughs> he can. Yes, because he can. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so it's because people now can do it. We're actually getting back our freedoms that we should have had all along. Yeah. Just so sort of everyone's aware, I've been speaking to people about it in Clubhouse and stuff, but within Australia, we're beginning to open up. Our vaccination rates are pretty high. We're beginning to open. Who knows how that's going to go in our state? It literally was just the day yesterday from when we're recording today. And they're talking about opening travel and so forth. But what's weird is that we still can't have like big events. Um, So like the seminar that I have paused here in Sydney is still not able to go ahead. Mm Mm-hmm. Unless someone gets married at it. If someone wants to get married at it, <laughs> we can have 100 people. But if, if no one's getting married, there could only be 20 and there's 70 tickets sold. So if someone wants to get married there, we'll find, a, we'll find a venue. Yeah. But they're talking about opening travel again. Internationally, we're testing that with New Zealand and Singapore coming soon, trialing a home quarantine thing. So like I'm guessing, and this is a big guess, I think that we'll be traveling internationally sort of early next year. I don't want to be pessimistic. I just want to be realistic about this. I think that now that it's opened up and cases go absolutely rampant, they're going to shit themselves. They're going to see themselves as the duck in the water and basically. Yeah, um, well, let's say. I think we just need to be moderate about this at the moment and just spend the next couple of months seeing how things go. Yeah. Because now that people are going crazy and they're mixing in public and this virus is going to take off, it has to anyway. Like it has to follow like the rest of the world. Unfortunately, it sounds like I'm being apocalyptic with my what I'm talking about, but this virus has to go. Mm. You know, it has to. Yeah, it has to run. It has to run. Like there's no way we can do this indefinitely and not let this virus run. It has to run through the entire populations wherever it is and it has to do its course and people have to either vaccinate or build immunity to it through the vaccine or whatever method that's working, not working, conspiracy or not conspiracy. Whatever's working, whatever way this stops, until that happens and everyone's shitting themselves over it and governments are trying to remain validated and popular and, you know, thinking they're doing the right thing, this is just going to be a mess for a bit of time. So hold the line. Let's just wait and see what happens next. Anyway, I've already spoken to people who, like all the events that I cancelled, were on standby. So when that can happen, they're going to happen in short order. But I don't know when that's going to be, but everybody's kind of on standby ready to go. So I'm excited about that. Well, it's something to look forward to at least that I want to get back over and be able to hang out with the ICP and so forth. I'm pretty confident that next year's conference will be at. I'm fairly confident of that. That I think is more on the scope than anything else. Yeah. Uh, At this point in time, as long as America doesn't have another massive relapse and then have to pull the pin like they did last minute last time, I think if it all goes ahead and it's in Florida too, I believe. I have no idea. I think it might be. I think it's at a Florida resort, but I have to check that. Yeah, I have no idea. Mm. I've got a committee meeting this Friday anyway, so I'll be able to find all those deets out. How exciting. Yeah. Sir, we were just talking about what we should talk about. Mm. You have a topic idea. I didn't have the chance to tell you when we were, so I was like, yeah, let's do that. I actually have a YouTube video in the wings that will come out about the same time as this, sort of discussing the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So they'll dovetail in well together. Cool. 
Grip development. Oh, sorry. I thought you said crypt development. I, I said I crypto. Was, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I was thinking you're getting into the crypto and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Good topic of discussion. It's something that you and I have a lot of passion about. It's primarily something that I spent a long part of my apprenticeship doing was grip and bite development. Mm-hmm. Effectively, that's what I started my professional career off in was working dogs in grip development, like mm-hmm. learning how to teach dogs to bite properly. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I had good mentors at the time. That changes and it mutates into different things as you go on and different sports requirements. Schutzen has a slightly different requirement for it. PSA has a different requirement for it. Mondio has variations of requirement for it. Belgian Ring has different requirements for it. Mm -hmm. Police departments have different requirements for it. So everybody has their variation. Nothing's entirely right and nothing's entirely wrong unless the dog is being fucked up over it. Yeah. I guess that's the only auditing process that I would have over if I was looking at a dog doing any sort of grip development. And what I do need to insert here is I've watched videos before where people have been with me and they've said, oh, look at this, it's really shit bite work, isn't it? And I said, you need to ask the decoy and the handler what their requirements of the dog are. Mm. And I said, it's not something that I would teach because I have a different requirement, but sometimes when you ask the decoy and the handler, like, hey, what are you doing this for? Sometimes they have a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And you might not agree with it, but it's working for them and it's exactly what they're doing. Or it might be that the dog has missing teeth or there could be a range of different things. Mm -hmm. So hold fast on some of your critiquing because sometimes I think what you need to do, and it's what I've had to learn to do as well, because there have been times in the past where I've been quick to shoot and I've said, yeah, shit bite work. It's not what I would do. But other people said, yeah, man, look, I understand it's not what you would do, but it's not your training and it's Mm -hmm. not your dog. And, you know, it doesn't follow your methodology. So pump your brakes a little bit, son. What I do appreciate about bite work regardless or any type of grip work that you're teaching a dog is teaching the dog to feel happy and confident about it, Mm -hmm. to remove as much conflict as you possibly can. Bite work is conflicting. It's a little bit um, frustrating at times, but after a period of time, once like everything, once the dog becomes comfortable and the dog understands, hey, this is a new exciting part of my lifestyle, that conflict quickly starts to wither away as long as it's been done right and it hasn't been done under duress and constant pressure all the time, the dog starts to feel like this is exciting. Let's take Macho for argument's sake. Because when I go in the shed, I haven't had you here and I haven't had access to any decoys. I had to start him off by me being the decoy. Mm -hmm. So it's all predatory work. So I'm not loading him up with defense, but it's all predatory work. But he knows when we're going to the shed, he just knows the routine now. So that was a a little video I did a while ago where I was pre-macking him, teaching him, you can't just run to the door and start jumping on the door. You have to come put your paws up on the air conditioner and then get your collar fitted, and then we go to the shed. Mm-hmm. So you have to do something you need to do, and then you have to do something that I want you to do. Uh, yeah, that it's a you gate want to you've do. got to go through. It's a, yeah, that's right. It, it's a gate you've got to proceed through. He's getting much better at that now. He knows that there's no way through the gate unless we go through this routine. Because he's wearing his collar, that's an indicator to him that we're going out to the shed to do work. So he's quite happy about it. He loves it. There's no conflict in it at all for him. He's really, really excited about it. So what I have been teaching him is the PSA methodology, bite deep, bite hard. Mm. So he's biting, for me, he's been biting right up to his back molars. He's pushing into the bite. He's giving me a really nice picture. Like everything he's given me is well. 
I'm yet to test that on you and see what translates to a different decoy, how comfortably it feels. Because now when you introduce somebody new into the picture, this is where the conflict starts to come back a little bit because it's a different person with a different strategy. They move differently. They mm-hmm. appear differently. And especially in young dogs, in older dogs, not so much. You know, when they're veterans, it's basically, yeah, this is the same picture. It's mm-hmm. the same windows I see all the time. Understand how to do this. There's no problem in it. With those type of processes, it's actually quite nice to see because he's very relaxed. He's having a good time. He's very excited. It's improving the relationship between him and I. When some people say to you, would this increase your chances of being bitten by your own dog? If I started making this defensive for him, absolutely. I could create a conflict problem between my dog and I. However, I'm not creating conflict between him and I. I'm not making him defensive between him and I. I'm not making him think I'm back tying him and then becoming a threatening posture to him where he has to defend himself against me or feel that he has to become agitated to a defensive posture. None of that is happening. And if you're self-decoying your own dog, like you're teaching your dog any sort of processes in bite development, A, you should know what you're doing you should have a history in knowing how to bring this on and how to bring in and develop these procedures with the dog. And B, when you're doing this, like I said before, there shouldn't be any conflict between you and the dog. It should be a beautiful process where the dog can come in. It's exactly like playing with a ball or playing with a a tug. There's really no difference in it, except it's translated onto different pieces of equipment. I just need to insert this caveat here at no other time that I'm playing with Macho, does he feel like now I have to bite your leg or bite your arm? Mm. There's no other time in the backyard where that happens where he feels like I'm confused about how we play. When he sees equipment, he knows exactly what it is and how he's supposed to do it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing that we should explore a little bit. Mm. Remind me to come back to right to there if I don't get to it. But I think a lot of our audience are sort of bite sport curious. They are. Right. And so you know, the information that we're giving here at an expert level should be common dog fuck. There should be people listening to this going, oh, that's not even how to do it properly, you idiots. But for the majority of people listening in our audience should be like, oh, that's interesting. And now I know a bit more. So one of the things I wanted to explain is that within the bite sports, they're all scored differently. So mm. you look at the big ones, say IGP is probably, you know, the, the most commonly known, most international dog sport that involves biting. And the grip style preferred in that is what they call an arresting grip. So the grip is scored, should be full mouth. They want the dog to be like completely you know, using his molars to hold on, full mouth, but then arresting. And by arresting, we mean like stopping. So because in the flea or you know, in the drive, what they want to see is that it becomes hard for the helper to drive the dog because the dog is trying to stop him doing that. And that's why German Shepherds are often very successful in that because they like hang in the grip. Something that is very interesting about dogs and grips, and this is one of the reasons when Sam started teaching me about this kind of stuff, he made me read this book on dog fighting, like an old school was one of the, I can't remember the name of it. Jay's talked about it. It's a, I think it's a history of the American people. It's Colby's diary anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's some really interesting stuff about that because fighting dogs from a hundred years ago, they had a genetic tendency to want to fight in a particular way. And because you don't have a decoy, you don't have like, you know, the bait dog is not a real thing in terms of being able to train a fighting dog the way that people think it is. Some dogs go for the neck, some dogs go for the legs, some dogs are thrashers, some dogs push and clamp. Like it's, it's a genetic thing. Mm. And what he details in his book is like he was able to breed a particular fighting style just through breeding practices, not through training the dogs to fight. So that's very relevant to us 
not because we're interested in dog fighting at all, but because the way that a dog bite is a proven genetic thing. Mm. So some dogs are leg dogs. They are more comfortable in the legs. Given the preference, that's where they want to bite. Some dogs are more comfortable in the upper body. Now, that doesn't mean you can't train the dog to be one over the other. My own dog's a really good example of this. Remy is a genetic leg dog. He prefers to bite in the legs. But because of the game I play and the decoys I have access to, I chose to put him in the courage test, like in a frontal bite into the uppers, because I think it's safer for him and it's safer for the decoy. I think leg dogs are probably for the real world, a better thing. And it depends on the game you're playing. Different sports encourage the dog to bite in different places. So let me just explain that a little bit further. That the leg dog part of it, like he will bite you in the leg on a flea. So if you're running away, he'll bite you in the back of the left leg because I gave him permission to do that. And I think that's safer for him and for the decoy. But in a frontal courage test, you need a good decoy that knows what they're doing for the dog to you know, not be injured doing that. Of course, he bites fine in the arms, but given the chance in development, he, you know, it doesn't even occur to him to bite the legs now frontal because that's the only picture I've shown him. But you can see he's just better. He bites better. He's more comfortable. He feels more powerful. That's his choice to bite in the legs. So different sports require different types. PSA, we score the grip and it's similar to IGP in that we want a full mouth biting with the molars, but we want the dog driving forward mm. rather than pulling back. And, you know, technically within the, the rule, the scorecard, there's no place where the judge is going to score you on how well the dog drives forward. It's the overall picture of the grip and mm. the picture of the grip is going forward. And Calm and confident. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. And mm. then you're going to have different, there's reasons why you'd be more successful because it can get really technical. And a lot of people maybe don't understand this in that if a dog is pulling on an IGP sleeve, like a hard barrel sleeve, they can't really self-satisfy particularly well while they're doing that because there's no play in the sleeve. It's hard, right? Mm. Like they're biting a relatively hard thing and the decoy is going to lock up and prevent them from rattling him around. What's going to happen in a suit bite if the dog is pulling back is that he stops biting the person within the suit and now he's just got suit. So he might have a full mouth. His mouth might be completely full, but if he's pulling and rattling and he's biting with his back teeth – now it, he's not touching the actual person within the suit. There's going to be a lot of play and he can keep self-satisfying doing that. Mm. And now your out's going to get harder and stuff like that because the decoy isn't, when the decoy gets told to freeze up, he can't, he can be as rigid as he likes within the suit. But if the dog is only biting the suit and not him, the dog can continue to rattle. So there's more to why you want to grip in a particular way than over others. Mondio and French ring are kind of different in that the grip is not scored in the same way and the dog can bite. However, like say French ring, for example, one tooth counts as the whole mouth. It's the same thing. Mm. They're more interested in that dog could bite at all rather than how he bit. And the reason is because in all the bite sports, the decoy, is attempting not to be bitten and there's different ways they'll do that so igp and psa which again are more similar than people sort of give them credit for the reason or the way in which the decoy is trying to not get bitten is by threatening the dog like i'm not afraid of you i will come at you and we will meet as a you know we will we will go head to head mm. it's a collision and that's the pressure to the dog and then when the bite happens now there's the drive where the decoy is like I'm going to continue to put, I'm going to fight you, right? That's essentially what they're demonstrating. And that's meant to bring the dog up in defense a little bit, right? In Mondio and, and, and less in Mondio, certainly much more in French ring is the decoy attempts not to be bitten by moving, right? Mm. By trying to get out of the way of the dog. They're allowed to escape the dog. When the decoy is allowed to try and dodge, 
which is much more realistic to the real world of what would really happen. Only a French ring decoy has got a lot more wherewithal than a random Jono who's getting bitten by the dog. So when people go like, oh, I just escaped that dog, it's like, eh, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> You're like, a decoy would, right? Like I think, I like to think, I don't know how what would go down in real life, but if someone sent their dog to bite me from 30 meters away, I think that I would try and escape it. No equipment, no nothing, like for real. You could probably get one or two. Yeah. But my attempt would be, I would try attempt to escape it and I would, I would counterattack as the dog missed me the first time. And I would attempt to like feed the dog my forearm or something like that. So that that's what gets bitten and I can control the dog. And I know I'm likely to get bitten, but I can manage it. Right. Mm. I don't know how many people I've been bitten by hundreds and hundreds of dogs. Right. So like, and I question even my ability to do that absent my bite suit. I don't know how many people for realsies would be able to do that. But regardless, in the sports where the dogs are allowed to dodge the – sorry, where the decoy is allowed to dodge the dog, they all end up leg biters because that's harder to bite. And they end up being high inside leg biters because that's, you know, that's the hardest thing to escape, right? Mm-hmm. If the dog's aiming for your sort of more – it's like in the army. It's why we get taught to shoot center of mass, right? Because it's harder to miss. Yep. It's the same thing with the dog. If he's going high inside legs, chances are that's a lot more difficult to escape than if he if – he, you know, you see – it's not a limb you can pull out of the way quickly. Yeah. The dog to miss. Like center of scene mass is what we used to train in the old days of ADT. Like get the dog to grab what whatever the decoy is showing. Yeah. And dogs don't have wings, right? Yep. So like <laughs> if you get these big flying hits and while they look good and in the sports, in KMPV, they love that. In PSA, we love that. In IGP, they love that. That's not ideal because in the real world, a dog a, while the dog's flying through the air, the decoy can just casually take a step out of his line of approach and not be bitten. That's, mm. That would be escaping it. And in the games where the decoy is allowed to escape to dodge, you see there's no flying dogs because they just get dodged, yep. right? So that's sort of a little bit of backstory for all of that. What I wanted to sort of explain on the topic of what you were saying there is working your own dog. And it's something we've discussed for sure on the podcast before mm. is that For the most part, the decoy that should develop the dog should be the best decoy you have access to. Absolutely. And if that's you, then that's fine to do, right? So a lot of people will develop their own dogs Mm. and teach the bite work with their own dog and even have someone else handle it because they are the best person to do that. Now, you can't finish your dog. You can't finish your own dog. You can teach your own dog a lot, but then it gets to the point where there's a point of departure on that. And certainly that's what happened, say, with me and Remy. Once he got about two years old, it got to the point where he can't bite me anymore because he will, he will bite me, but now because he bites with some venom, right, there's like we've done the defense work, we did all that kind of stuff, there's a little bit of vitriol in the way that he bites now there's conflict because he won't bite me like that and I don't want to put the pressure on him to do that. Mm. And so, you know, it's kind of – I could do bite work with him, but it would be pointless. Yeah, I'm what not, you're talking about is the leveling up. Where, yeah, that's right. So mm. to, I can't – I can start my own dog, yeah. but I can't finish my own dog yeah. because I need someone else. I needed you to do that defense piece for me. Mm-hmm. And then once he – you know, that adds the last layer to the bite work – but I can't use that on myself. So it becomes kind of irrelevant. Now I can play a game with him and we can do that kind of stuff, mm. but it's kind of pointless, right? Uh, like at the moment, I'm, I would rather him bite nobody than bite me because biting me doesn't like, I would rather just play tug. I would rather do so because it's essentially the same thing. He knows where to target. He knows how to grip. The only 
difference between playing tug and doing bite work is now there's some venom in his bite work. Like I'm doing this to hurt you, to, mm. to, to arrest you, to whatever the, you know, whatever you've trained the dog to do. So it kind of expires on the gain of him biting me. There's no gain anymore. Right. Mm. He knows the things that I could teach him. So that's for the most part true. But what I wanted to just sort of add to what you were saying there is I think there's some dogs you shouldn't do that with. And it depends on where the dog is biting from. Like, yes. and, and I mean that in like the case of why is the dog biting you? Now, when you start layering in obedience and asking of the dog certain behaviors, and then the dog bites you as a reward for those behaviors, you can be programming a very dangerous thing into mm. that dog's mind. And that is that I relieve frustration by biting you. So even if it's not defensive work that you're doing a lot, like for the most part, people like you and I, we've said it plenty of times on this podcast, when you are doing bite work, it's fine until you get to the defensive piece and you don't want your dog biting you with aggression, yep. right? It can be prey. That's fine. But with aggression, you shouldn't do. Yep. But there's lots of different kinds of aggression. Aggression can come on from different reasons, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it might not be that the dog's aggression that the dog is biting you with is, I don't want to say fear, but like, you know, safety, right? Because yep. that's what we do in defense work. That's what we do. And before you can call a dog finished, is even if you want to play sports, you really do need to show the dog like, hey, this could get a bit real. This could feel a bit dangerous to you, but it's okay. And we'll, we'll explain this a bit in a minute. It's okay. You can win but you do have to win, yep. right? Like you do have to, you, you've got to bring in that extra 10%. You have to, you know, let that turbo fire yep. so that you win the game. And that's what you shouldn't show your own dog. Someone else has to do that for yep. you, trusted totally person. Totally agree. So that's one of the types of aggression you should never allow your dog to express into you. Mm. The other is frustration and the download of that frustration as aggression in biting, right? Yep. And if you're wearing equipment, now you can do that into a tug. You can do it into lots of different ways and you can show the dog, I can be Externalizing that. is fine, but yeah. internalizing is not. I can be that blow off valve for you, yeah. right? Like I will provide you the outlets. Now, whether yeah. that's a tug that I'm holding, whether right. it's a ball that I'm going to fight with you for, whether I'm going to let you hit a spring pole, whether I'm going to, you know, find a decoy that can do this, you know, whatever it is. It's external. Me and you, if I put you in a position where you spool up like that, I'll provide you an outlet but that outlet can't be into you, right? right? And and so if you're developing a dog that is a hothead essentially, right, like and gets wound up, and especially if in your training there's a bunch of conflict, like the dog wants to be doing something else and you're asking him to do, you know, something he doesn't necessarily want to do. Mm. Like, and, yeah, you know, let's explain that a little bit more. If you're asking the dog to hold it down and he holds that down and his only competing motivator is that he's going to get to bite your suit that you're wearing – that's okay, right? But if the dog's like, I would rather be doing a bunch of different things. I'd rather be chasing butterflies. I'd rather be chasing that dog down. I'd, you know, like if there's other environmental stresses that you're now asking the dog to resist and become frustrated over, and then you give the dog an outlet to expel that frustration into you, now you're setting the dog up to bite you when it gets frustrated, right? And this is where you get some people talking about like handler aggression and that kind of stuff. Handler aggression is a real thing. It can be a genetic trait. Some dogs are just like, fuck you. They've got a, a shorter trigger for that. Mm. But I think a lot of dogs that get labeled as handler aggressive, they certainly are. They'll bite the handler mm. right? That's with aggression. But 
it's because of the way they've been handled rather than that it's just a genetic trait that was there no matter what, mm. right? So I think that's really important. When we're talking group development, bite development, I think it's really important to remember, f- for the most part, you can do it with your own dog. Mm. But some, there's an end point to that. And with some dogs, that end point is pretty early, right? Where yes. it gets to the point where the dog's like, I am, I'm putting teeth on you with anger. Mm. Even if that anger is just frustration over not being allowed to do other things, you're setting yourself up to create conflict in a dog that now knows it can direct anger into you. Good points. After listening to you provide that really good explanation, which I believe anybody listening, that was a very clear and detailed analogy of what you should be doing or if you're considering doing it, the areas that you need to avoid. And it made me think of when I was a young kid and I was training in kickboxing for a period of time. At our local gym, we'd have all your colleagues, all your mates. It's usually people that you've either gone to school with or people that you've met at the gym and you're training with. Now, when you're in the ring sparring with these people, you're exchanging blows and, you know, like you're doing some kicks and punches and everything like that as you're supposed to do in the sport. But these are your friends. Like these are your sparring partners and you really don't want to knock your partners out or hurt them really badly or anything like that because you're building technique with each other. But what we used to do was we'd go and have, or other people would come to our gym, we'd go and do gym visits. We'd go and visit another training gym and you'd, you know, like you were sparring, but you'd want to knock them out. Yeah. You'd want to download onto them because that was all okay. You know, that was kind of like- That's the point. That's the point. So it's kind of like the unspoken rule of let's play nice together because this is a sparring session, but knock the fucker out, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and that's what would happen. Like, you know, the sessions would get harder and it didn't mean that you'd always, because you're wearing headgear and you're protected, but it was the next level up until you start learning, okay, now I'm going into the ring from here. Mm. But back at home base with your own people, the exchanges were genuine but they were scaled back. Mm. Like you'd give probably 60, 70%. And it wasn't like you were setting yourself up to fail. It was like, okay, here is the technique. I need to feel what it feels like to be kicked or receive a crack in the chops, but it's never at full pelt. When you went other places, it was full pelt. Yeah. Primarily thinking about that is like thinking about starting off your training and your technique and then moving to your genuine decoy where you can start adding some shit to it the dog can start realizing, oh, okay, this is a little different. This picture is different. I know how to do the bite. Okay, I know how to do the bite placement. I know the depth of bite. But this decoy, the only way I feel relief is by putting the hurts on this decoy. Yeah. You know, and that's where I start to feel relief in these bites. With you, I can see it's a game and that's how it's got to remain. And I loved your explanation of how you're talking about allowing the dog to externalize when it is feeling pressure into something else you know, into the ball, into the tug, into something else other than you, because it it should never be you. You should never have made that dog realize that I feel relief. Anytime that I'm feeling conflicted or agitated or defensive, I just bite you. I'll nail you in the leg and that's how I feel good. Yeah. Because that's where it does get really dangerous and that's where you're completely training with conflict with what you're doing with your dog. Yeah. And that literally is the, the beginning of the end of the relationship between you and that dog, because Anytime that dog feels discomfort, the dog thinks, well, I can't get to the objective. You'll do. Yeah. Okay. So I'll just turn back and come back at you. Yeah. And well, and it's, it's basics of dog training, right? So we constantly see in dogs when dogs make a, they preempt commands. Mm. 
So a dog might look around and say you're training for a trial and you show the dog the trial picture too much, right? Because you're you're thinking this is what it's going to be. I've got to make sure the dog understands it. Say in one of the exercises, for example, is a recall in PSA. In the level two is a recall between two decoys and the dog will be told to down in between them, all right? Now, the points for that is in the speed with which the dog is running and the down because if the dog takes off, like he clearly knows I'm going to be told to down here, that's because the dog has looked around and gone, oh, this is the picture. I know this, mm-hmm. right? I feel a certain way and I see what's going on here. All the things align, like the emotional state that I'm in and the picture that I'm seeing tells me that you're going to recall me in order for me to down here. And because you've paid me for having done that, and maybe you paid with bites from those decoys or maybe, you know, what, however you pay the dog doesn't really matter. The dog goes, all oh, right, I see what's going on here. I'll just do what you wanted. I'll do what seems like the obvious progression without you having to tell me. So if you're doing a lot of your own bite work in those surprise scenario games where you're practicing that, you're showing the dog, hold this down and mm. then I'm going to be the conflict. I'm going to agitate. I'm going to, you know, rattle the cans. And I'm going to do all the things that a decoy will do to you. And then you get to bite me, right? You'll think that you're explaining we're going to do these things and then you get to bite the decoy. But what the dog is understanding is we're going to do these things and then you get to bite me. Yeah. Right? And so what I want is once we get to that, like, as I say, that really high level of frustration when I'm tapping into, and the whole point of surprise scenario games when we play those with the dog is to test how far did you get your dog's ability to keep its head when madness is happening. Mm. That's the whole point. Mondio, PSA. French Ring, MVBK, all those games where you walk out on the field and you're like, oh, what the fuck is happening here? And there's all this madness going around. Really, what we're testing in the dog at that point it's is- control. Yeah, your control over that mm. dog. And how- and the dog's control over itself. Yeah, and it's like the willpower, or not, That's what's the right word we use in dog training is the, not willpower, but like the ability to hold a behavior. We're testing the dog's ability to continue working mm-hmm. despite- you know, edging towards a loss of clarity because of these environmental stresses, right? What needs to happen is that the dog knows I point you towards the thing that you will be able to relieve your stress into, Mm. right? So in training, you can do all this kind of stuff. And you say to the dog, like, I ask you to do all these things. And then all those things are the path to the success that you want, right? And the success that you want will be pointed out by me and I'll allow you to take it. If the dog reads the play and preempts this, the dog will bite the decoy by accident, Mm -hmm. right? And that's often what happens. That's the test. That's the game. In PSA, you see dogs bite in the obedience in the level two and the three regularly Mm. because the dog's like, I see where we're going with this. And in my example that I just used, you're recalling the dog past two decoys. The dog happily goes like he goes slow into there, downs, and then gets up and nails one of the decoys because he's like, I did what you wanted. I knew this is where we're going. We did this in training a hundred times. I'll just get to the end point, right? And people go, ah, bugger, my training was bad, back to the drawing board. And someone obviously then says to him, oh, you did too many bites there. You got to, you know, show the dog that blah, blah, blah. And we fix it. Mm. But if you're doing a lot of that, that results in you getting bitten, the dog preempts, oh, you're going to release me and let me bite you, right? Only you're not in the suit today, right? But the reason your dog is doing these things and turning back at you is because he's lost clarity. So he doesn't notice that you're not in the suit that Mm. day, right? That's why you get bitten. So that's important, I think. Again, just listening to you using a couple of examples there, there's often pictures that fly around in my head of thinking about examples of how to explain this. And it's, it's been examples that I've explained to people in the past. 
being involved in crowd control, like I did probably about 10 years of crowd control working in clubs and pubs around Melbourne. And you really get to read a lot about behavior. You have to. And you would do this being in the army as well. Like you have to read your environment. For you, it's a lot more dangerous because in pubs and clubs, people are trying to knock you out. When you're out in the desert, people are trying to take your head off, like Mm. legit. So you have to be able to be very, very clear about what you're reading in any in picture you're going into. But danger is danger. You mm. know, like it still can result in a fatality if you're not very careful or grievous bodily harm. So when you're in those sort of situations, one of the things I used to really watch about people was how does a person manage when they're being called by their friends? Like when their friends are holding them and saying, you know, like it's time to leave. We need to get out of this situation like a mate trying to stop another mate from doing something dangerous and regrettable with an opponent. One of the behaviours that always used to very much concern me was when a a friend would attack his own friends in order to make them release him so he could get to the opponent. Mm. I knew then I was dealing with a mad dog. Yeah, he's lost clarity. He's lost clarity, exactly. And I relate that to when I watch a dog as well because when I can see a dog that will turn on its handler and bite its handler, there is a definite loss of clarity in that picture or mm. something that you have mistakenly created with your dog. So it can either, it can be a genetic component. Of course. It can be a, a training error or it can be that the dog has suddenly decided I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do and the conflict has created such an, a high level of emotions and arousal that it's basically experimenting with behavior right there and then. And God forbid that the dog ever learns that that is the the best way to feel relief and and reinforcement by doing that. It's always a big concern to me when I see that happening in public forums, when I can Mm. see a friend elbowing his own mate in the face. And I've seen those sort of situations before. I saw a guy like knock his mate's teeth out, elbowing him in the face, trying to make him let go so he'd get to the other guy who was just calling him names. Mm. Basically, he ruined, I don't know how long they were friends for, but he ruined a friendship over name calling, Mm. you know, just because he was, his feelings were hurt. He basically smashed his mate's teeth out. Mm. And those sort of things are a massive concern to me. Can you believe our first day back in the studio, it's now pouring and and the sound will be ruined by that rain. Oh, I'm doing my fucking (laughs) head in. I can see you spooling up over it as you're talking. I mean, now I'm in conflict. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, them's the brakes. Yeah. You know what we should do? For uh, get a whisper room. We we need. Oh, we need to soundproof this room. Yeah. We could put a uh, over that. Put a like a curtain or something. No, like if you put a like a a plug, like a piece of ply or whatever, and then we can put soundproofing the whole way around. Turn yeah. this into the whisper room. Oh, get a whisper room. We need a sugar daddy to get on Patreon and get us that whisper room. Yeah, yeah. we need that. So. The next thing I wanted to talk about then in that grip development piece is Mm. I think one thing you see some people who are, you know, newer to this kind of work or just don't, you know, have their education, the grounding in it, is that they try to show the dog pressure and teach the dog how to overcome pressure at the same time or even before they've taught the grip to be what they want. Oh, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. So Mm. there's a couple of like there's gates that you go through and you can start to do things kind of simultaneously, but they're you know, there's you have to check off one box before you can go to another for the most part. Yeah. And so, you know, what I should preface as well is 
the, the very best people to learn this shit from is like Jerry Bradshaw's book, Controlled Aggression, yeah. is literally the Bible on this stuff. Like yep. if Because it's you, the one plus one plus one methodology. It's it's mm. the idiot's guide. Like yep. I, even I understood it when yep. I read it. I was like, oh, like this makes total sense. It's like do this, then do this, then do this. I actually gave my copy away to New South Wales Police, so I need to get my – I need to get another copy of so it. So what you're saying is they should all have amazing grips because yeah, they they've, should. Got, they've got access to the text. Yeah. So Jerry's book is the Bible on it. And then if you want to see practical explanations, he had like his podcast has a Patreon, Sean Edwards, you know, who follows the pretty much exact same thing has a Patreon as well, showing all of this, all the videos are there. It's all done. So check out that, but let me bastardize their version for you. Mm. Is it however you want the dog to bite and you probably should want the dog to bite as full and deep as possible. Now, whether you want pulling or pushing, that's kind of up to you, mm. but you really should be promoting the dog to bite with its back teeth as much as possible. You've got to teach the dog how to do that and be successful as that and realize that biting the way you want it to, that might be totally against what the dog thinks is genetically correct, right? Like he, he's, all of his genes might tell him to bite with his, with his nothing but his canines and pull back. Or you get those monsters. And, and, and a lot of times you see people who like talk about what great grip developers they are. And like you couldn't, the dog's so genetically programmed to bite that way that you couldn't wreck it mm. even if you tried, right? However you want the dog to bite. And so let me talk about the way that Jerry's book says and the way I think and, and the way Sean would teach you is biting with their molars, right? So yep. you, you want the dog to bite with their back teeth and hold on, right? Now, whether going forward or pulling back, that's up to you, but you want the back teeth and holding on. You have to teach a dog that that's what success is prior to him thinking he's in a fight and then trying to find success because he, in a real fight, you're just going to do whatever feels right at the time. If you don't have a lot of training behind you. And the truth is as well, when fights get really real, you're likely to resort to your genetic impulses anyway. Right. But for the most part, we want to keep it as predictable for the dog as possible. And that's why we show the dog a picture that looks like a real fight, but is actually training and that kind of stuff. So we can continue them to do what we want from them. And that is biting going forward. So the success has to be not like you're winning a fight. It's that we're playing a possession game with this leather strap. Mm. And if you hold it with your back teeth, I can't steal it from you. And you're the winner of the game. And if you hold it with your front teeth or if it sits in the space behind your canines, which is intuitive for a dog to try and hold that strap because it's easier it's conservation of energy to hold it there. I can steal it from you and I'll be the winner. Mm. So even just showing that early, I think is what a lot of people miss in that you develop the grip and you show the dog, Hey, this is what success looks like. And then you can very slowly start to put pressure on the dog. And that pressure is like, I'm pulling on it really hard. Right. Or like I put you in a bit of an uncomfortable position. And so if you put the dog, you're playing target and it's all going sweet and he's biting with these molars, crushing that strap and there's no way you can possibly steal it from him. Now you just create a little bit of an environmental conflict where you go like, Hey, it's still just me. I'm still friendly to you. And I'm going to back you into a corner, like a, the corner of the room. That's mm. it. And if that concerns you and you change your grip, I'll be able to steal it and I'll win. Right. So then you show the dog like, Hey, when you feel stressed, success is still biting in this particular way. Mm. Then when you've completely taught that, now you can start putting when the dog is biting and targeting and, and we should talk about targeting as well. But when the dog is biting the way you want in the places that you want, that's when you can then start showing to the dog like, hey, now keep doing that in spite of these other things that are happening to yeah. you. Now it's incrementally time to go to the next level. Yeah. Mm. And so you keep the dog like you show, hey, this is what I want from you. Bite yep. like this. Okay, you've got it. Cool. Now bite in this position. 
Okay, you got it? Cool. Now, in spite of the troubles and the hardship that you're experiencing, i.e. the rattling stick, you know, the yelling decoy, even being hit with a stick, whatever it is in your game that you're allowed to do or what you ever, you know, you're preparing the dog for, you want to say, bite like this, bite here, and now continue doing those things in spite of this pressure that's coming. And the only way to turn off that pressure is to continue doing the things that you already know. And you've got to layer learning. Learning has to be layered that way because if you go straight to, and this is what a lot of people do, is they go, okay, the dog's an adult now. We've done no grip development with him and we're just going to put him on the suit. We're going to just agitate the shit out of him. He's going to bite somewhere. If you're a good decoy, you can present so that he bites where you want anyway. Mm. And now we go to putting a shit ton of pressure on the dog. And whatever the dog does right there and then will be exposing its genetics. And now if you're testing a dog, fine, no worries. That's what you do. But if it's your dog and you want to develop it, you should teach him what winning looks like Mm. and then put him in a position to have to battle and win. Because if you think winning looks one way and the dog's genetics tell him that winning looks another and you haven't taught him what you want, he's just going to do what Mother Nature tells him to do. Mm -hmm. And that might be the opposite of what you want. Then people go, oh, well, that dog's no good. He's terrible. He's a puller. He's rattling around. He's growling. He's doing all those kinds of things. And it's like, yeah, he is. And that's not good. But we really should have taken the time to teach him what we did want in a low stress environment because there's no way we're going to be able to teach him. He's fighting in his mind. He's fighting for his life. He ain't learning shit. Like Mm. in what you think is a fight for your life, you are not learning anything, Mm. right? You need to be practicing skills in that time rather than trying to take them on. The argument then sometimes comes from people who go, well, this dog had no development. He bites like a crocodile. And when no matter what we do to him on the bite, he just keeps going forward. I'm like, yeah, that's right. We should breed that dog for sure. Mm. <laughs> right? That's good genetics. That's what we want. But that's not to say the other dog is junk. That's not to say that other dog can't do those things if he's taught incrementally yeah, how to do Yeah, they're the windows that have been presented to him. That's what that's the life he knows. Yeah. Mm. So like that's just one of the things that you, know, you often see with – just straight to the pressure, heaps Mm. of pressure on the dog. And for the most part, people are happy that the dog just stays in the bite through pressure. And we're like, yeah, that's probably not ideal considering we could teach him how to turn pressure off via an action that feels fairly unnatural to him. And if we do that incrementally slowly enough and develop it well enough, then that's what he'll do. Mm. And of course that falls over at a point, but the idea is to get the dog so well ingrained in that program that it doesn't occur to him he should do anything else. Mm. And that he feels so confident that no matter what happens to him in real life or by a decoy, the progressions, the increments to get to that point have been so small that he's like, Oh, well I've, I've handled something very similar to this yesterday. I I can do it again today. It's Mm. only a little bit more. I can beat this. And that's how we toughen dogs incrementally. Very good lead into the inspiration of really why we want to have this conversation. Recently, I was watching a video of a decoy working a dog who is a talented decoy. And I can tell that the decoy moves well, has an understanding how to read dog behavior and so forth. However, there are times where I've watched decoys working and even in my own understanding of how to work dogs and train dogs. When you're spoilt for choice on dogs, this is not poisoning the well on Mallies or anything like that, but let's say, for example, you've been a decoy and you've been raised with Mally after Mally, who's just a great hitting and biting dog. You develop a callus for that type of dog. Like yeah. you understand that dog and how to read those type of dogs really well. Then when you come up with a dog who's less than that or different to that, you've got to be careful that you don't get into the format of just blaming the dog for it because you've built that callus around that type of working dog. You can then become a bit systematic 
and a bit lazy to that style of training. I've seen a couple of examples recently where I know the decoy is a good decoy. I'm not questioning the decoy's capability in, in being able to train. What I am suggesting to them is they need to go back to the drawing board and say, this is different to what I'm doing. This is a different breed. This is a different style of how the dog attacks the situation. And I'm not talking about attackers in yeah. attack, but attacks the situation or so, so forth or handles the situation. As the dog's decoy and the handler's training partner, we need to reassess this situation and we need to probably step back or I need to present differently than the way I'm presenting. I need to absorb differently than the way I'm absorbing. I need to even angle differently than what I'm angling. In the past, I've seen dogs that, and people say, well, the dog shouldn't do that. But this is sometimes genetics as well. Yeah. Some dogs come under, some dogs come straight, and some dogs come over. You know, And this is when I'm talking about the dog hitting sleeves. There have been situations, like the first Mally I, I ever trained and ever did any bite work, that dog came high and came down on the sleeve, like came, you know, like when we were working sleeves. Now, I was working, working Rottweilers back then, back when Rottweilers really had some nuts about them. Roddy's come in and low, like they come in and up on the sleeve. This Mally came through the air and down on the sleeve, and that caught me by surprise. Now, when the dog came in, instead of catching the dog on the bite bar, I caught the dog on top of the sleeve, and it looked shit house. Like it looked really bad. That was my fault as a decoy. I wasn't reading the picture that the dog was giving me, but I wasn't aware of how Mallys moved and how fast they are. Now, some people say, well, that's bullshit. That's not how Mallys move. Well, it was the way this Mally moved. Whereas the shepherds that I understood, because when I trained a shepherd, I'd always hold the bar straight on with Roddy's slightly down with shepherds straight on. Then I started to learn, you have to read the dog, what the dog is presenting you. The mistake I made was telling the handler to let the dog go and let the dog run in. What I should have done was walked up to the dog on a back tie or even a good you know, handler that can handle the dog well and started to do a little bit of agitation work at a distance with the dog, read where the dog was moving, like where the dog was targeting and understand that. You mentioned before teaching the dog how to target. That's an essential piece of kit right there. Mm. Yes, you do need to teach the dog to target. Now, for some reason, I believe this dog was an imported dog there just weren't many Mallys around, you know, like 25 years ago. You rarely saw them. Certainly not in this country. Not in Australia, no. So it could have been a genetic component in the dog or the dog was taught to target, come in high and land down on the sleeve. Like I said, it caught me by surprise. But when I saw the dog working on the suit and I was wearing an arm at the time, I said, let the dog go. The dog came in and it looked terrible. The, the whole picture was messed up. If my ego got in the way there, I would say, oh, that's a shit dog. He doesn't know how to bite. Dog knew how to bite. There's no two ways about it. That dog came in fast. The dog was agile. The dog bit deep. There was intensity in the bite. Everything was amazing about it. But I just needed to go back to the drawing board and understand I don't know how to catch this dog. I need to learn how to do this properly. Rather than get agitated about it, blame the dog, blame the handler, blame everything else but what was actually happening, what I did say, and it was through the good graces of people around me as well, is hold the dog and let me come into you. That way I got to assess what was going on. I got a much better feeling of it. And then a couple of weeks down the track, we did an off-lead catches as well. I caught the dog perfectly. Mm. Like the dog hit the sleeve, center of mass, beautiful bite, got to carry the dog around and land the dog safely and everything. And I thought, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Mm. Those sort of things really need to be assessed. Like you need to take elementary steps back to actually assess the situation understand the dog and understand where the dog's motivations are right there and then. And what does this handler dog package actually know? 
And that's your credence as a decoy. Like you really need to understand, okay, this dog's not shit just because he's biting differently or his targeting is off or anything like that. I do need to insert another caveat right here. Some dogs just don't have a propensity like some people don't have a propensity to go forward as being high-level athletes. This is the reason why there is also always a, a like a criteria for things like Commonwealth Games, Olympics, or any high-tier sport where people are tested and measured against each other to find out who is the best representative right now in our country. Right now, who is the best representative to go forward and represent Australia or whatever country in these games at such a high tier? And the same could be said for dogs. Now, some people don't even have the propensity for little athletics. They just yeah. they just don't. And they'd be the first to say, look, I'm not an athlete, you know, like I'm a computer guy. So those sort of people shouldn't be forced into athletics and those sort of dogs shouldn't be forced into bite sport. So you've got to kind of know what you're presenting with at the time because genetics definitely will play a part in it. I've seen shepherds and roddies and mouths to a degree that have been forced into sports or forced into bite work and you can see that it's conflict from the get-go because yeah. this dog doesn't have the metal to proceed in it and it's breaking the handler's heart like it's really fucking with their head to them that's the worst possible thing because they're just thinking i'm a failure through my dog but what you're doing is you're not presenting your dog with living its best life picture. Mm. It's exactly like having a kid and you, because you wanted to be a pianist, you're pushing your child into becoming a pianist and the kid does nothing but hate it, mm. like completely resents everything about it because everything in their DNA points to something differently. And, and we should point out, they might be fucking good at it. They could still be amazing at doing it. But hate it. Yeah, it doesn't mean they enjoy doing it. Yep. Yeah. There's no soul there. There's no passion. I mean, I saw one of my mate's kids play piano, and I mean, that kid was a little kid and had soul and love for piano. They didn't have to push him into doing it. This kid wanted to do it. Like, yeah. he loved like he loved playing for everybody in the room. And, I mean, I love listening to this kid play piano. He was brilliant at doing it. Where I saw another um, friend's mate playing an instrument, and he hated it. Like, mm. he'd see roll his eyes anytime his parents said, go and play for Uncle Glenn. Let him hear play the – I think he was playing a saxophone or something like that. And he could he could play it. He could play it beautifully. You could just tell, I hate this. Yeah, it was mechanical. It was mechanical, exactly. Yeah. And I've seen dogs go through that exact type of lifestyle before where people have pushed them into this miserable type of life. I know we're sort of shooting around with different strategies That's unlike here. us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it does follow suit to the journey of a decoy and a handler because this is a very integral relationship and there needs to be a lot of honesty here and you, you do need to drop the ego. Yeah. The ego is the worst possible thing that could enter the room with you guys. Like if there's two massive egos colliding here, the decoy is going to insult the handler. The handler is going to feel very uncomfortable. The situation is going to be shit. Mm. What the handler and the decoy need to do is be vulnerable with each other and have a, a very honest conversation about what the picture is. And that means that you both need to understand this is as far as you can go. Mm. And that's okay as long as it's okay with you. So I've known some handlers before, all they want to do is they just want to have fun with the dog. And I said, well, as long as it is fun for the dog, that's fine. But I'll tell you when I, th I believe it's no longer fun. And I think we need to quit well before that happens. In ADT, we were predominantly a bite sports business. That's what we, well, it wasn't sports. It was, a, it was a business around biting. So we were working with local laws, privatization laws, personal protection dogs, all sorts of things. 
there were people that came down there who realized I'm never going to reach these levels, but I'm having fun down here. And so is the dog. And that was fine. We used to cap it off then, but it was an honest conversation. Yeah. We never led them around the path and said, you know, you can aspire to great heights when the dog was clearly incapable of doing that. Mm. We used to just say to him, look, there are seven levels in what we're offering here. You'll have to cap at level three because that's what your dogs are capable of. And people were happy with that. Mm. They just enjoyed coming along and being part of the fellowship because it was an honest conversation. No harm, no foul. Mm. Everybody won. It was a victory all round. I've seen other people that have tried to push through it. I've seen other decoys that have tried to push through it. And you can just tell this is now entering a situation where everything we're doing is aversive. Mm. There is nobody winning out of this. The decoy is super frustrated. The bond between the handler and the decoy and the dog is it's diminishing. You can see problems now that nobody is ever going to return from properly. And this is where situations spiral out of control. Mm. And this is where clubs spiral out of control. This is where ultimately dogs suffer for it. There needs to be some critical thinking when things like this start to happen. Being a decoy is an interesting thing, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. I'm an okay decoy. The truth is, I think I feel like, especially the way my body's going at the moment, like I'm pretty much on borrowed time. Mm. Even when I started decoying, I really shouldn't have. And my body's falling apart again. And I really shouldn't even do as much as I do. And I think I'm only okay at it. You know, I'm a certified PSA decoy. And as a trial decoy, that really, something people should probably know is like, that really says that I'm tough slash stupid enough to, (laughs) I'm tough enough slash fit enough slash stupid enough to get through the physicality of the selection. Yep. And I can follow instruction well enough to catch the dog in the way that is required for the trial. I think in developing dogs, I'm okay at it. I've had some really good instruction, but I'm not a natural at it. I've had to sort of learn a lot. But what I am good at is teaching people stuff, right? Like mm. that that's kind of my strength. And one of the things I do a lot, I wish that more decoys did, was really explain to people where we're at with their dog and why I'm doing the particular things they're doing. And I think there's a couple of reasons why decoys don't like to do that. First is that, you know, they're worried where people understand. It cuts into the time that you've got, you know, like especially at club, we don't have time to spend as long as we did working the dog, talking about the dog afterwards because we've got to get to the next dog. I'm going to do all this. You know, I'm probably guilty of that a fair bit. And then you wonder, I think some people don't like to pass on the secret sauce. There's a lot of decoys that, you know, want to be the decoy because there's, there's an ego to it and they don't want to train other people. I'm the opposite. If I never have to wear a suit again, I'll be happy, Mm. right? But the reason I do like decoying, the the main reason I do enjoy it and I continue is I think that you know the dog better than anybody else. Like even the handler, right? They see the dog like in one environment and when the dog's biting, they see the back end of the dog and they can see the overall picture, but you're in the ring, right? Like Mm. you really know that dog. And it's similar, you know, I was thinking about it when you were talking about that sparring kind of thing. Like when you've had a fight with someone, even when it's just sparring, like, you know, them, Mm. right? Like that's a new level. Yeah. That's a new level of intimacy because you're in the hooks. No matter what kind of fight, whether you're boxing or grappling or MMA, you're in each other's personal space and you can touch them places. They don't get touched and you can put pressure on them in ways that they don't get pressure put on them. And Mm. you really learn a lot about them. And as someone who, you know, has to advise people on buying dogs and genetics and that kind of stuff, like I'm usually pretty hesitant to give too much judgment on a dog on how it can buy it unless I've worked it myself. Because you can make videos look however you want. Mm. And the decoy can really tell. Like I've worked certain dogs and you know, in front of crowds of people and to the crowd and educated dog people, they're like, wow, that dog's great. 
it looks good. And it was because I made the dog look good. Yeah. But I was the only one that could see the dog's eyes and I could see the dog was fucking well. And like you can feel the pressure. Panicking, yeah. Yep. And I, I was the only one that can feel that bite. Mm-hmm. And I can see that every time I put any pressure on the dog, like the grip loosens. And so I'm keeping, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm doing the right thing by the dog. I'm keeping the dog in the fight. I'm keeping the pressure below what the dog can overcome so that he continues because I'm training the dog. I'm not there to fuck up the dog in front of anyone. But afterwards, I then hear people say, oh, mate, the dog's a monster. And I'm like, hmm, I wouldn't breed it, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, because I know stuff, and even the handler doesn't know that stuff. And I think that the conversations, the really frank and sort of leaving your ego out of it conversations about a dog has to happen with the decoy. And I think decoys should be honest with, uh, and for the most part, people I know are, but you really got to be honest with the handlers about where their dog is at and what you're doing and why. Mm. And as a handler, your decoy probably should be able to explain those things to you. Or it's possible that you're just in the hands of a a savant that can't explain it to you, but can do a wonderful job. Those Mm. people absolutely exist. I I 100% acknowledge that. But for the most part, everything that they do should be with purpose and calculated so that they're like, you know, when you say, why'd you hit the dog like that? Well, because, you know, I was trying to bring this effect and it did or did not work. You know, like everything has to have a reason. Why are you countering that way? When he pushed you like that, why did you fall over? Was that on purpose or did you, you know, did you trip? Like there's got to be a reason for everything that you do. The reason might be a shitty reason, but there still has to be a reason. You have to be calculating what you're doing. But I think that the critical part of what I'm sort of explaining there is that communication back to the handler, because especially in the sports, well, no, no, let me rephrase. In all of it, the decoy that's helping you develop your dog is just one of many. And you as a handler need to know the limitations of your dog. And Mm. the person who knows the limitations of your dog the best will be the decoy who just worked the dog the last. And there's been a few instances and, you know, this pisses me off quite a bit where, and it's my own fault because I keep fucking it up. I've fucked it up many times is when people say to me, yo, they want me to work the dog. And I go, cool, where's he at? And they go, you know, he's on the suit, targets well, can take a heap of pressure. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then I, f- I totally fuck the dog up. The dog pops off the first bite, bites me in the crotch in the leg, fucking goes for my face. And that's happened to me at, at seminars. It's embarrassing when it happens for the people. So the handlers are then like, oh, what the fuck just happened? And it's embarrassing for them. Mm. But for people who know what they're doing, it's also very embarrassing for me because I'm like, oh, fuck, I just set that dog back. Mm. And I had one a while ago that, you know, the handler of the dog said, oh, the dog's great. Dog's biting the suit handling heaps of pressure and I always because I've you know I've had this happen to me more often than I care to admit I always dial way back whatever people tell me their dog has been doing or can do I always take it back a few steps because we've got to warm up right mm-hmm. I'm not going in fucking guns blazing well, it's like to, the story I just told with the Mallee yeah you got to feel each other you out you got to feel each other out yeah and the first time you work a dog unless it's in a trial in a trial fuck you I'm coming for you right yep. these are the rules this is what I'm doing but if I'm working the dog to develop it or, you know, for whatever reason, if it's outside of a testing train, a trialing context, Mm. I want to feel the dog out and say, Hey, what do you got? Like, how do you buy it? What do you do? How can I make, how can I, how do you move? How do you enter a situation? It's the same thing. Like exactly when you were talking about the sparring situation, when you're sparring with somebody, like you start off just tagging each other a little bit, you know, like, how do you move? What's yeah. your defense look like? Yeah. How do I get into you? And and what do you look like when you're fit versus when you're fatigued? Yeah. Like there's a whole there's all that. gambit of pitches going on there. And so what's happened to me on multiple occasions is I might say to someone, oh, your dog's ready. Where's the dog at? Oh, he works a suit, heaps of pressure. Cool. All right, sweet. So I come in, frontal, 
just calm. I'm like, just post the dog. I'll just walk in, put him in the bicep, take it from there. And, you know, walk in, I can see the dog fucking like panicking. So I like in this circumstance I'm thinking of, I was never even going to let the dog bite. I saw the handler standing there. I saw the tension go into the leash as the dog realized it's going to do bite work. As I'm walking in, the slack fucking goes yeah. onto the leash and the dog looks at me like I'm fucking terrified. And I was about to go, no, 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 no. We have to re, no, we have to rethink this. Handler, let's go of the leash. As I said, don't do. Dog flies in, hits me in the bicep, pops off. Fucking <laughs> bites me in the guts, pops off, hits me on the dick, pops off, ends up nearly biting <laughs> me on the foot, like, yeah, off the suit. It's just a terrible picture. Before the handler eventually comes in and gets a dog. And then the handler says, you know, everybody's like, what the fuck just happened? And I'm like, I knew that was going to fucking happen, but only a millisecond before it did. Yep. And then they're like, but he works a suit all the time. And it turns out he works a suit, but has only ever done flea bites and has only ever bitten someone running away on the back of the tricep. And the same decoy. Same decoy all the time. time. Yeah. yeah. And it's my fault. It's not the handler's fault because the handler was like, suits the suit. Pressure's pressure. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's, it's really different. Yep. That picture of me walking in on your dog is a really different picture to me running away and your dog pursuing me because me coming in, in that dog, immediately kicked it into defense and I, it was I, I, panicking. I actually hope people are really listening to this, this last five minutes. I really hope people who are getting into the sport or have been in the sport and doing the same picture over and over- it's like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Yeah. That's not generalization. And generalization has to be experienced in yeah. light sport. That dog has to see multitudes of different pitches with different yeah. stressors at different levels, incrementally in- induced over periods of time before it can generalize and say, yep, I can work any decoy anytime yeah. in any location. Exactly, right? That's what was missing from the conversation was mm. the decoy who had developed that dog to that point End up finding out, you know, it's a good, he's a good decoy. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. But that communication piece was missing mm. because the dog wasn't a strong dog. Like yep. absolutely should they breed that dog? Not a fucking chance in hell. Like absolutely that dog should not be bred. The dog is not suitable for the game. See, that's another big conversation that needs to happen. And that's probably a podcast on itself yeah. about where the lines need to go from there or yeah. should they stop. But that's the dog the handler has. and. Yep. They want to play a game with it, so fine, right? We develop slowly. And the dog had, you know, the dog wants to bite. And could the dog handle a a courage test and a drive at some point? Maybe if we kept going really slowly. Now, I'm not saying the dog's awesome, but they could play the game they want to play, Mm. right? But I set that dog back massively because the dog's first experience of the frontal picture was overwhelming Mm. to the dog. And what was missing was the handler didn't know the difference between those two things. And how would they? They're not a decoy. They don't know, right? Yep. Like biting's biting, right? Mm-hmm. You bite. What, what's the difference between biting a tricep and biting a bicep? It's the same thing. No, it's fucking very, very different, mm-hmm. right? And then there's reasons why, like, you know, some dogs that will perform awesomely on the, on the forearm will perform terribly on the bicep. And it, it often gets labeled as a nerve issue, but it can be like more of a spatial pressure issue, mm-hmm. right? Like if a dog has been, if a bloodline has been developed to do well in IGP, that they genetically want to get their full mouth and they want to arrest pull, right? Maybe the reason that that is happening genetically is it's a spatial pressure thing in the, in the conflict of the bite. They're like, I want to create distance from you, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my grip in order to create that distance. And that's going to end up in a dog that genetically bites exactly the way that the points are scored in IGP. Mm. But then when you put that same dog on the insides, he's now goes like, shit, this is spatial pressure. This is too much because I can't escape this. And it doesn't occur to them they should go forward. And now maybe the genetic 
predisposition to create distance in the conflict outweighs their willingness to bite because you put them on the inside versus them being on the forearm. Mm. And there's like, you know, there's little, and you can train that, you can manage it, you can do lots of stuff about it. It's not to say that it's like end X, but you need to know, like a lot of people certainly that I've worked with don't even realize, I shouldn't say don't even realize, aren't aware that, right? Because I don't want to be, I'm not saying they're less than, it's because this shit's hard to learn and not enough people are teaching it and not enough decoys are explaining it two people well enough is that there's a big fucking difference between biting someone on a forearm and that picture versus biting someone on the bicep and Mm. being locked up in there and being driven. Like that's a really different thing. It's like everything you're doing when you're going through your phases of training, just because you're proficient at one and you're in a proofing phase in one exercise, it doesn't mean that you don't go right back to elementary level. And one of the things that people really need to glean from that last part of the conversation that you just had then is don't let the dog experience be with a new decoy in a proofing exercise with something that you have no experience in, in any other location. Yeah. All you're doing then is just opening the floodgates of failure there. Yeah. Because that won't be an appetitive way of training any exercise. All you're doing is exposing your dog to doing it this way in this location with another person is totally adversive. Yeah. And and something I just want to say, because there'll be people listening saying like, oh, that's bullshit, Pat. Like a dog should be able to bite on the inside as well as it should on the outside. I agree. It should be able to. But it's still going to learn. Yeah. And some dogs don't need to learn shit. They don't give a fuck. And they're the best ones. Yeah. And if you've got one of those, you got a congratulations. Yeah, you've like, got, you, awesome. Good for you. Breed it. Yep. Hopefully everything else is in check and breed the fuck out of that dog. Yeah. But for the most part, they're not all like that. And I agree as well that like there are dogs that just don't have it and we shouldn't be putting the work into them and they shouldn't work the streets. They shouldn't be in real jobs and blah, blah, I get all that. Mm. But if someone wants to play games with their dog as a decoy, like you have to figure out the way to progress them in the game, right? Like that's the thing I think a lot of people as well, it's something I also want to broach on today is sports versus the work and why we care so much about the grip in the sports and why that's actually way more important in the work. Like a lot of people in the sort of dogs bite for real Let's say police and military circles, but that includes security and protection dogs and all that kind of stuff. I just have the habit of saying police and military. They think that the importance of good grip is driven by sport because most of the people, like a lot of the people training police and military type dogs also play the sports, right? Mm. And so there's this perception that the reason I care, like for me, Pat Stewart cares so much about way a dog bites is because of the sport. And it's actually not. The reason we care in the sports, the way a dog bites, is because of the points. But the reason the sports were written that way to include points that way is because we're driven by the real world stuff. I think Mm. a lot of people think that the real world stuff is driven by the sports, but largely the sports is driven by the real world stuff because that's where we're the where the proofing ground, where Mm. the the breeding pool, where the training, the battle lab, you know what I mean? And I think that a proper targeting grip that is full and one bite that's full and holds somebody until you either tell the dog to out or choke the dog off, whatever, depending on, you know, your circumstance is way more important in the real world than it is in the sport. Because Mm. like I said, when that dog popped off me, right, the dog bit me, hit me in the bicep, bang, popped off, hit me in the guts, popped off, bit me on the dick and balls. I went, thank God I'm wearing the box, popped off and then went down towards my feet. That's fine. Cause Mm. I was in a suit and I was like, Oh shit. Then I wear a cup. I'm like, oh, well, we've caused a big problem training-wise here. Mm. But if that happens for realsies, 
that's a lot of wounds. That's excessive. That's excessive force, mm. right? And also, like, you got to look at, this is something I explained in the video that I've got coming out, is that for the most part, statistically, why does a security dog or a police dog, militaries may be a little bit different because you're getting bitten by a military working dog, chances are you're also getting shot, right? So, yep. like, probably less important for them. But for the normal police security type staff, Statistically, why is somebody getting bitten by a dog? It's usually because they're violently, but without a weapon, resisting arrest. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main statistics. That's one of the reasons people will be bitten. Or they've committed uh, crimes and fled, and the dog is the has tracked and bitten them, and they've they've not you know they're resisting arrest at the end of a track. Yeah, it's that's apprehension. Apprehension. Mm. You got to look at it right. So you you're violently, but without a weapon, because your dog shouldn't be biting anyone with a weapon, right? So this is one of the things that people see. It's like transfer bites to the weapon hand. It's like. Why is there a weapon hand? There shouldn't be a weapon hand. You're a cop. Someone's got, got a, a gun or a knife. Or... Shoot that fuck. Yeah. Right? Like, don't send your dog to get stabbed by them. What are you, a fucking moron? <laughs> right? But of course they might, you know, you might not know that's there, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not saying if your dog has been stabbed, you're a bad person. You might, but if you knew the person had a knife, then yes, you are. But like, look at that situation. Someone's unarmed resisting arrest. Chances are you've caught them at the worst day of their life, Right? And for whatever reason they've done it, I, I'm not like anti the police. I'm like, if for whatever reason they have to be arrested, they have to be arrested. And you have to use absolutely whatever amount of force it takes to do that. Mm. But when they eventually go to court over that, they're going to get a slap on the wrist, right? They're going to take into account, which you can't do on the day. You just have to get them under control right there and then. You have to. That's I'm 100% on board. But when it goes to court, they're going to explain that he lost his job, his wife's leaving him his kids in intensive care, whatever it is, they're going to explain why he acted that way and he's going to get a fine or a slap on the wrist, you know, whatever it is. Mm. What no judge or jury is going to say is, oh, well, because of that, we're going to fucking mutilate you for the rest of your life, right? Mm. <laughs> that is a consequence <laughs> too strong, right? Yep. So maybe they need to be bitten by a dog. Maybe they do, right? But it behoves us to teach those dogs to give them one set of holes, right? One set of holes that assist the officer in controlling them. Mm. And then, you know, the other reason I think a lot of people don't understand as well is like, why do dogs get choked off of the bite rather than told out? That's for the guy who's getting bitten safety. It's so that like he goes clean and he, if he tries to hit the dog again or whatever. You can just place him back on. Or, or you can avoid the dog from biting him in a new place because yep. he's under control at this point. Mm. So like if you out your dog and the guy's like, oh, I'm free. Here's my chance to escape. And the dog outs and then he strikes at the dog. Well, the dog's going to bite him again. Now he's got a second set of holes. Mm. So for his own safety, we leave the dog on. You put the cuffs on or whatever you're going to do. And then you grab the dog by the collar and you take the dog off that way so that nobody gets bitten again, mm. right? And the reason it needs to happen right there and then is because you're about to start bleeding really badly. You're not going to be bleeding while the dog's biting you, right? Because the There's teeth are plugging the, the holes. Yeah. You're about to fucking bleed really badly, man. And yep. we need to help you with that at this point. Mm. So when people are like, oh, transfer bites and I don't care where the dog bites or how because it's legit, well, you will – for one of two reasons, your conscience will catch you. You just destroyed someone's fucking life, mm. right? You brutally maimed someone that didn't need, they, yes, they needed to be bitten if all that happened, but they needed to be controlled. Mm. They didn't need to have their life destroyed right. in that moment. Yep. And even if you don't give a shit about that, you will when it goes to court, Yeah. right? You will when, when you get 
found to when have, suddenly you're the criminal. Yeah, you mm. get found to have used excessive force, mm. or wherever you are in the world, it's going to be different for you, right? Mm. But I just think that's worth pointing out as well, because I, you know I'm pro people getting bitten by dogs if they have to, but what I'm not pro is having someone who's just having a really bad day, yeah, never use their arm again. Yeah, right? that's right. Like I think that's definitely something. And cops get taught of that. I'm not complaining about cops, but what I am to, I, I am complaining about is just people who don't think the grip is important. That's why the grip's important, mm. right? It's not for points. The reason we have it in the points is because we want to demonstrate we have the ability to teach that. Well, that's why clarity is important because all of this spools up into the importance of delivering clarity because at the end of this conversation, you know, there might be some people who listen to this who aren't interested or don't understand bite sports at all and think, wow, this sounds really dangerous, teaching dogs to bite people. The only time that I've ever felt unsafe with dogs is when the dog has a lack of clarity. Yeah. That's the only time. And I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Like, I mean, I'm still doing involved in PSA and so forth, so I'm still involved in bite sports, but I spent a solid 10 years at the start of my career. That's all I did was just biting dogs. You know, like I was a helper in two shoots and clubs back then. I was involved in ADT and all we were doing, like literally every single Thursday night and every single Sunday and every day in between while I was working there full time, all I was doing was training dogs to bite people. And I mean, I was literally going to people's house, buying dogs or getting them, you know, like rescuing dogs taking him back, dogs that I didn't know that I did have a conflicting start with, but these dogs I had to get to know, teach them to understand me, feel comfortable with me, and then teaching them a bite program. I've never, ever felt unsafe with a dog who has clarity. Mm. I felt unsafe with dogs who don't have clarity, who have had bad management systems, bad handling, former bad decoying work and so forth because there's a lack of clarity there. Mm. So if you're listening to this and you're triggering off that and thinking this sounds dangerous, you've misread the entire conversation. Yeah. And it wouldn't be hard to do so yeah. if you're lacking experience in that. Yeah. To that point, yeah. we should explain that police and military and security, they need dogs. It's a force multiplier. It keeps people safe and the dog's extremely effective. Yep. And for the most part- in those roles, dogs act as a deterrent more than anything else, right? And, and of course, deterrents are only as effective as their last deployment, mm. right? So the dog needs to be capable of doing what we're saying it needs to be able to do so that then people go, oh, okay, you're going to get the dog out? Like, I'll, I comply, right? So that mm. they don't get bitten, those kinds of things. So police, military, security absolutely need dogs. We've been doing this for millennia, using yep. dogs in this, in this manner, despite the world progressing further and further forward and life getting better for many, many people, there still is a requirement for that, right? Mm. Like we still have that. And then the reason that the sports and the hobbyists need to exist is because we're preparing the dogs for them. And even if it's not directly, like, so you might have a club of people doing IGP or French ring or what, anything you want. And they all buy one dog. They don't breed dogs, but they, they all buy one dog. They all play their game and they never expect to ever sell that dog or whatever. In spite of them just doing their own thing with those dogs, they are a critical part of your ecosystem mm. to providing, making sure that police and military dogs continue to exist because those are the people that are testing those dogs over and over and over, proofing genetics, proofing bloodlines, proofing training techniques, which then get filtered into the police and military world. Yeah. So I know a lot of people kind of look at and go, yeah, look, I accept it. I get it. Police, military, security, they need dogs, but you guys are just playing games with your dogs and you're creating dangerous dogs. Mm. For starters, we're not. 
but also without the sports guys, there can be no police and military dogs. Within, If all biting dog sports cease to exist, so too would police and military dogs within a generation of dogs. Mm. I want to jump on a topic before we do the wrap-up of something that you were talking about before with the importance of breeding and so forth. This is something that I visibly saw in, I would say, mid to late 90s, where there were two Rottweiler brothers and one of them was exceptional and should have been bred with. The brother of the dog was unimpressive and was bred from extensively. Have you ever seen the movie Twins, Danny DeVito and yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Of course. Some people might not have seen it because it's like a – If it's you like haven't a, seen it, hit stop right yes. now. <laughs> yeah, go watch it. And this sounds really offensive because it's not that the dog wasn't a nice family pet, but the dog was bred for as a working dog and and promoted as a working dog on the success of the brother. Mm. But this dog inherited the shit milkshake gene. Mm. It had nothing impressive of it. So anything that was working related went into the impressive brother line and he should have been bred from extensively. The dog had good hips. He had good structure. The dog was very clear about biting had a very quick off and was very stable as a dog. The brother of the dog was none of those things. Mm. You know, like everything that could have been wrong, but the owner of that dog was catapulting off the success of the brother line. Of course. And that was the horrible thing. I remember having a conversation with the owner of the dog and portraying my disappointment at what they were doing, and it nearly led to physical altercations. Really? Yeah. Because Good thing they couldn't have sent their dog on you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, they could because the dog would bite, but it didn't have clarity. And yeah, that yeah. was a dog that I felt unsafe for. And I, I literally said, I will not be a part of training this dog. Yeah. Primarily because this person was completely delusional. And all they were doing was polluting the, the working line breed. Everything about the brother was everything that you would say, this is what we need to uphold. The owner of that dog really wasn't into breeding. Like they did have a few litters, which was great, and it got to preserve, and it did show up in the progeny of the dog. The other one, extensively used, like literally has had littered the working dog lines. And I think that's why you start to see a lot of problems in the breeds because people who don't understand breeding, who don't appreciate bloodlines, are all about ego to them, or it's, you know, it's a real attack on their pride. They just don't get it. Mm. It's such a hard conversation because there are no real rules about it. Yeah. That's kind of one of the issues without the sports. Like people will continue to breed these dogs, but then it's all talk, mm. right? You see that around a lot. People say, oh, my dog's got this and got that. And it's like, or is suitable for this or is suitable for that. And it's like, well, mate, you've never been a cop or in the army. So you don't actually know what happens with those. And you don't play any sports where people can go and watch and see this for themselves. So we're just kind of taking you at your word, Mm. which is fine. I believe you to be an honest person, but also like you have a limited understanding of the reality of the the situation, right? right? So like that's kind of the issue. That's one of the reasons why a lot of, you know, successful dog sport competitors, like people who can really train a dog, a lot of times breeders give them their dogs because it's like, I want you to demonstrate. You're promoting my stock. I want you to demonstrate the capability of the dog. That's a great deal. People go, yeah, cool. Like I'll, I'll take the dog on. Like me, for example, I don't breed dogs, but you can see my dog is out there. Like he, the evidence is there, the evidence mm. of the bloodline. He, this is what he's capable of, right? Now, when you have a, the dog in the hands of a good trainer, then you can remove the like, oh, well, they fucked up the dog. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, he's an honest trainer. He'll show the capability of the dog. And if your dog's got it, then it'll be demonstrated. Yep. The more of that, the better, the more people that put their dogs into sports. It does make me uncomfortable when people are like, no, I don't sell dogs to people like that. It's like, 
Well, because someone with a, with a clipboard will stand there and assess the dog. <laughs> like, is that what you're worried about? Right. Speaking of, I'm going to lay down the gauntlet. I want to get a Roddy again. Really? At some stage, I want to get a good Roddy. If, like an, a working a line? A working line Roddy. I want to put a PSA title on a Roddy. If anybody's out there who really believes that their dogs have got the medal, I want to have a conversation with you about getting a dog. I've been filleted for not having a Roddy for years. So I'm laying down the gauntlet. I don't want a pet Roddy. I've had a couple of pet Roddies and I love them and I cherish them and, and they saw their life comfortably with me. But I want a working line Roddy. I want something that will be able to test its medal in PSA and we'll be able to come out the other side with it. I'm not talking about having to get a three or anything like that, but I want to take this dog as far as I can. If it can get a three, even better. But I've talked about it with Narelle. I'd really love to see a Roddy back in my stable again. I've had Shepherds for a while. I love Randy. Macho's not my dog. He belongs to Dave. So at some stage, he'll be coming in to claim Macho. So I do want to get myself a Roddy. That's see, exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too. But we need to have honest conversations about like, I don't want to get an inbox full of Roddy people just saying, yeah, my dog will do it. Well, but you know, you well, know I, I do. Suitable. I do know the remainder of the working line people here. This doesn't have to be a baby puppy either. I'd prefer it to be, so I've got some say in it. But if there's a young juvenile that's in good physical candor and so forth and clear-headed and has that clarity about it, I'm happy to have that conversation as well. Awesome. But I do want a Roddy back in the stable. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I can't wait to see who gets in contact. Yeah. I see some around, you know, that pretty good. By well, Roddy standards, you well, know. Tank was great. Tank's like one of the top 10 dogs I've ever worked, regardless of breed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. I reckon that's a good place to end it. It is a good place to wrap up. Hey, that's it for this episode of the Canine Paradigm. Where we actually got to yeah, we're actually lovingly look, look at each, each other, other across the, I know, the desk. Right? Yeah. Can you believe it? Yeah, we got to wink at each other. and Yeah, and it stopped raining. It wasn't too It stopped loud. raining. Yep. Everything's lined to, up in our favor. We got to talk over each other. Like family guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yep. That's it for another episode of Canon Paradigm. Mm. I've lost my rhythm. I can't even remember how to say the thing. Like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Truth is, the best way to support us is tell a friend. Tell a friend in real life. You could post it on your story on the gram or share it on Facebook or all those kinds of things. But none of that is anywhere near as effective as like stopping a stranger on the bus and saying, hey, if you listen Sign to up to Patreon, bastard. Yeah. The very best way to support the show is to jump into Patreon. That's what keeps the show going, if we're honest, right? Like, that's what pays the bills. That's what buys all the equipment. That's what continues us as pushing forward. Mm. There's content that comes of that, right? And there's content inside of Patreon that you guys get to watch. There's a question that somebody had the other day. They said, if I sign up to Patreon now, do I get all of the yeah. past episodes and content that you put in? The answer is yes, you get everything. It's a great time to jump into Patreon now because there's a plethora of material Pat's been really filling it up with some quality content as he's been getting better with video content. There is a lot of material, a lot of educational material, yep. stuff that you just will not get in public forums. So yep. if you want to learn, like it's our learning platform. If you want to learn about things, Patreon's a place to go. It supports our show, puts money in our coffers to pay our bills, as you said before. There's a lot of gratitude to everybody who has been doing that. There's some people who've literally watched nothing who just hang in there just to help support us. Yeah, and- mate, honestly, that's one of the really, that's why I get so conflicted about the Patreon stuff is because I see the stats on who watches the stuff, right? Mm. What happens is when you sign up to Patreon on the first of the month or however you sign up, whatever system you agree to with Patreon, but basically first of the month, your card gets charged at three bucks, right? Or 10 bucks if you're in that tier or $20 if you're in the other, regardless of whether we put anything in there and you're prepaying. And 
I get really stressed about making sure that people find value in what we're putting in there. And I stress over it and I put in so much work like that. IGP thing I did, that was hundreds of hours of work. Mm. <laughs> and only like half the people watch it or less. So the rest of the people that are in there are just supporting it. So that's what I'm really acutely aware of. But that's what of. Patreon's for. No, exactly. I know. Yeah. So like I'm really acutely aware that there's people who are just like, hey, I enjoy the show. Here's some money to make sure it keeps going because they like what we're doing or they're getting good The rewards are there if you want them. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's it. So there's yeah. heaps of information. If, you want, if you're a person that wants to be there to get info, it's there. And if you're a person that's like, no, I'm not going to watch any of your dumb shit, Pat, like that's fine too. But being in there helps support the show. And no pressure. We absolutely appreciate all you guys so mm. much. And, you know, you've bought me all the equipment that I use to make all the YouTube videos. So, like, in spite of the fact that they come out, you know, in a different medium, they are the podcast. They're yep. the same thing. And the Patreon supporters have paid for that. And rather than putting that into Patreon where I know only a few hundred people will watch it, I would rather make it public knowing that I can help educate thousands of people with those original hundreds that are paying for it. And I mm. hope everyone's okay with that. If you're not, let me know. Cause I want to provide good content to you guys. If you want something specific, let me know. Um, but we changed the format of doing it every month and putting stuff in there because it just became a bit redundant and, and repetitive. We're going over the same stuff and I'd rather, I'd rather add stuff in there less frequently, but higher quality. Yep. That's what I think. Yep. Sounds good. <laughs> Buy our shirts as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing one right now. Yeah. You've yep. got dog quip on. You've got the Bullfeds shirt Yeah, on. I do. Because he keeps sending me stuff. He's, yeah. he's clever like that. I've got one of those too. This is my favorite hoodie. It's a nice hoodie, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, But I like this hoodie from uh, Teespring that we sell. Yeah. I was yeah. wearing one of those and got bitten the other day. It's Did got you? A, got a hole in the arm. Oh, yeah. You have to get another one. <laughs> so jump into Teespring. You can get some cool merch, not least wall tapestries and you probably see our underpants. giant canine paradigm. I just went and checked it out. How cool is yeah, it? It's enormous. It's I enormous. Didn't, I didn't realize they were that big. Yeah, that's, they... that's the biggest one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's in our training studio at yeah. Canine Evolution, but it's enormous. It is enormous. Maria walked in there the other day and she goes, oh, mm, we really should get a canine evolution sign up here because uh, it's you been- should flooded by the canine paradigm the canine paradigm which so is also cool get in teespring get some cool gear i mean you probably if, if you've got like a hole in your wall or like instead of repainting your house you could just get one of those giant tapestries and put it up yeah it would be fine if you want to get in contact with us jump into the facebook group there's some really good stuff going on in the mm. facebook group at the moment it's like groups within facebook is kind of the last bastion of of non all over Facebook. Yeah. So jump into their <laughs> group source information. Be kind to everybody in there. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to shoot us an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. Hold on before you hit that button. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to say is, you know, we put out a lot of content, right? And you get mixed feedback yep. all over the internet, people all over the internet. This is like last thing of the show for people who hang around this much. I try hard not to worry too much about what other people have to say about me and stuff, but it stings sometimes when people- Yep share something or they leave a negative comment or something like that. And it can sting. Especially if it's someone you like too. Yeah. But to those people, I just want to tell you something else I do as well. Whenever we get really nice feedback, which is at least weekly, someone sends either to me directly or to both of us. And Mm. I'm sure you get independent stuff as well. Mm. Like really genuine heartfelt feedback. I screenshot that and I have a little album on my phone called feedback and I just want you to know the people that are like, oh, this fucking dickhead, I'm sick of hearing about him. When I see that, it does upset me. But then I get out my phone and I look at my album with hundreds of pictures of people that have given me lovely That's feedback. Right. And I think, fuck you, fuck. <laughs> 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 That's it. Goodbye. <laughs>